Good morning. Happy Father's Day to every dad out there. I'm praying for you, and I'm praying that God's Word reflects the greatest fatherhood that there is on earth, and that's the relationship that we have with our God and Father. Um, Last week, we kicked off the Ten Commandments series, and we learned the account of the rich young ruler and God's endless possibilities. You remember that story that Jesus brings a man to the end of his rope. He asks, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. The man realizes, sadly, that he hasn't kept it to the extent that he could. And when Jesus brings him to the end of his rope, us to the end of our rope, we discover a God that has done it all for us, a God that has completed it all in our place. And out of that, looking in that mirror and realizing that we can't do it all, and realizing that God has done it all, we have this new life, this life that's wide open, that's free from the burden of the law to keep the law out of joy. And this week, we dive right into the first commandment. And I'll tell you, if you can keep this commandment, you'll have no problem with the next nine. Just keep this one, I promise. The commandment is this. Let's say it together. First, you shall have no other gods. You heard earlier in the confession, the forgiveness of sins part of the service, how God said that on Mount Sinai. He says, don't have any other gods except me in heaven above, on earth, or on the seas below. He's covering the bases from top to bottom, and he's saying, no other gods except for me. And this morning, we're going to look at the account in the Old Testament of Daniel, chapter 3, and the three friends in the fiery furnace. This story could be new to you. And if it's not, it could be familiar to you. Maybe it's been a story that you've grown up with hearing if you grew up in a Christian home. Um, But it's a story that outlines this truth that God says, I want to be your only God and here's why. Three things. I don't want you to tune out because if it is a familiar story, it's easy to tune out. Number one, see what an incredible God awaits you. Two, we're going to discover and see why we need to rid ourselves of all other gods. And number three, see that the God of the Bible is the only God that you really need, that anyone needs. Okay, so that's the path that we're going to go down. We're going to go down that path, and it'll kind of give us an outline for the message. We're going to discover one, see what incredible God awaits you. Number two, see why you need to abandon all other gods. And three, See why the God of the Bible is the only God that you need. Uh, The background to the story in Daniel chapter 3 is this. The year is about uh, probably 400-500 B.C. It's been about 500 years since Israel's uh, dynasty was at its peak. I'm talking about the time of King David and how all of his armies were taking over all of the land and he was seeing great success. The time of the unsurmountable wisdom of King Solomon that you hear about. Um, it's, it's been about 500 years since then, and now the kingdom of Israel has turned away from God. From the top to the bottom, many of the kings have rejected God and gone their own way, and many of the people have followed into idolatry or following and worshiping other gods except for the Lord God of the Bible. God, in that time, about, uh, he said, I love you so much. He disciplines his children, the Israelite people, like a father disciplines his children so that they will get back on the right path. And he uses a foreign dictator named Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to invade Israel, 
to sack Jerusalem, to go into the temple, in fact, and take all of the belongings of the temple back to him, with him, to Babylon. And he also did this. King Nebuchadnezzar went in and he did something that was pretty typical of people that would take over lands at that time. He took with him the cream of the crop, the, the best of the best, the valedictorians in the Hebrew schools, the, uh, the, the Nobel Prize winners, those type of people in Israel, the Hebrew people. He took them away from that civilization and he brought them back into Babylon. Why? Because he could use the brightest and the best minds to push his agenda, to, to, to help technical, uh, technology advances, to help intellectual advances in his own kingdom so he could become more powerful. A couple of those people that were taken, the cream of the crop that were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon, are the subjects of the story in Daniel. Uh, in the first couple of chapters, Daniel 1, 2, and 3, we learn about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are Hebrew people that have been taken away and put in Babylonian universities. These three friends believe in the Lord God of their heritage, the one that they grew up with, and now they're being brought into a new land and they're being put into universities and the king's paving a path for them to, 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 to make their way up in his cabinet. One other Hebrew friend, his name is Daniel, the name of the book, Daniel, that friend is also one of those Hebrew people and he gets higher even above these three friends. And as the story goes, Daniel helps these three friends work their way up in power and prestige in the, in the kingdom in Babylon. All the way to the point that King Nebuchadnezzar makes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the, the province of Babylon. And so they're almost in the king's cabinet, high, high position. That's where this story hap- starts in Daniel chapter 3. Like any, midi- uh, like any ancient despot of the time, King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make, make a big name for himself. And he himself had ideas that he was God too by the ranks that he had made it and, and the power that he had. And, and by the, the beginning of that chapter, it says that King Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue, a huge statue. This statue is a gold statue of himself. It says it's nine feet wide and it's 90 feet high. I mean, it's a skyscraper that he builds And then he calls in all of the administrators, all of the government leaders from around the world that he he commands, all of the Senate and the the House and the, the Parks and Rec Department, all up and down. He calls them in to this statue and he has them stand around it. And then he makes an announcement. Um, He makes the announcement saying, calling all people from every language and every nation, everybody come to the statue now. And when the music begins to play, bow down and worship. What if we don't want to bow down? If you don't want to bow down, you're going to be baked in a human oven. (laughs) He was ready to kill anybody that wouldn't bow down to this huge statue of himself. I mean, how narcissistic is that? Sure enough, Daniel and all the three friends of Daniel are in the crowd too. And the music starts to play. And the people start to bow down. You can probably see some people rolling their eyes saying, what, what kind of guy makes a statue of himself and then has everybody bow down? But I'm going to bow down anyways. He's the boss. They start to bow down. All except who? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Come on. Really? All you got to do is bow down and then you could make your way up in the ranks. And, you know, you, you, a couple of the administrators saw that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down to that statue. 
And they went to Nebuchadnezzar and they said to Nebuchadnezzar, King, there's three Hebrews out there, Hebrew people. They're not bowing down to the God that you set up. And Nebuchadnezzar said, what? They're not bowing down? They said, they're not bowing down. And you said that whoever doesn't bow down, what happens to them? They get baked in a human oven. And Nebuchadnezzar is furious and he calls uh, these friends in front of him and he says, why aren't you bowing down to this statue? I told you just to bow down to it. I'm your king. I'm the one in charge here. Don't you feel, that I'm, don't you feel the heat? I'm preheating that oven over there. It's getting kind of hot. Do you want to bow down now? And then the three friends, again, we're about to learn about how incredible their God is, the God that awaits you. They say this. Nebuchadnezzar says, What God is able to save you from my hand? And that's a good question. He holds all the power. He holds the power of their very life. And yet they're defying a king that could just crush them in a moment. They reply to the king and they say this. They say, well, first of all, they, they, they have in their heart this promise from their God. And this is why they say what they say. And we're going to go to that first. It's Isaiah 43, 2. They have in their heart a promise from their God, the God of the Bible, that no matter what that they would go through, God would be with them. So long before, think about these three friends before they're captives, but they're, they're at home and their father is teaching them about their great God. And he opens up a prophecy, this prophet Isaiah, that was God's word for them. And the prophet Isaiah says this. Um, he says this to his people before they go into captivity. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Do you hear that? The God of the three friends made a promise long before they were even put into captivity that he would be with them amid the flames. Now, what incredible God is that? (laughs) They stand up to King Nebuchadnezzar with this promise of God in their hearts and in their minds, and they say this. They say, no, there's no way. I can't bow down to this God that you put up because I have a father. And like the the other passages in their life that they grew up learning, the, the passages about their great God that says, like a father has compassion on his children, so God, the Lord God, has compassion on those who fear him? How could they bow down to the statue when the God that they know is the God that will rescue them, that the God that will deliver them, that the God that's their dad? No other child is going to give Pastor Patterson their Father's Day gift. <laughs> that was for God, the Lord God of the Bible. He was the one that was their father. He was the one that gave them life. He was the one that gave them faith. He was the one that made the promise, I'm going to bring you through fire. I'm going to bring you through water. And did you notice that God said he's not going to have any trouble with whatever King Nebuchadnezzar throws at these three young men? They knew a great, incredible God. And so they come back to the king and they say this. They say, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reply to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Notice three things in this statement of faith that they have that they recognize about their God. They have an incredible God, and the incredible God that they have 
defends them. Verse 16. Did you see that? They don't have to get defensive with the king. They say, we don't have to defend ourselves because guess what? We have a God that will defend us. In other words, our God, his arm is not too short to save and his ear isn't too dull to hear us. He's a powerful act of God in our life. When your son is done with his training wheels and he can't figure out how to take these things off, happened to us recently, who does he go to? He goes to the one whose arm is not too short to take off training wheels. He can't do it himself, but his daddy can. And when your daughter can't reach the cup up on the top shelf, who does she go to? She goes to mommy, she goes to daddy, whose arms are not too short to save her, to deliver her, to give her what she needs. We do not have to defend ourselves when all along God says, I am the one that's going to deliver you. My arm isn't too short to save. And they know that God, an incredible God that promises that. So number one, they don't have to defend ourselves and neither do we when we are asked the question, who's able to deliver you? We know the answer. It's, it's, it's that God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Number two, um, the incredible God that awaits you will deliver you. Did you notice that? They say he is able to deliver us and he will deliver us. And we're going to see in a moment how he does that. Number three, he's able to defend us, he's able to deliver us, and he gives us a future. And this is the incredible God that has promised to give us a future. They say, King, even if we don't get delivered from the fire. And you have to erase your mind and erase what you know if you know the end of the story about what happens in the end. These three men just are basically admitting we're about to go into the fire. God can deliver us. He's able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't deliver us, even if we burn it to a crisp, that doesn't make him any less of a good God. Why? Because God and his relationship with them cannot be burned up in a furnace. In other words, their life may be taken away from them, but guess what? The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his relationship with them goes beyond even death. And if they would get burned up, do you know where they would be with the God that promises them a future? (laughs) They would be with him. And Paul says in the New Testament, he says, it's a good thing to die because if I die for my faith, God says that I'm going to be with him forever in heaven. And that's even better by far. The friends have a God who's given them a future. Do you see what incredible God that they have? Um, King Nebuchadnezzar was not impressed by their speech, by the way. <laughs> he threw them in the fire. I mean, he, 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 he was furious that there was somebody or something out there that could, that could be more powerful than him. And so he takes the strongest soldiers that he can, the strongest rope that he can, ties up these friends. The soldiers take the friends all the way to this furnace. Oh, by the way, he turns up the furnace from 425 to 3,000 degrees, it says. And he had these soldiers take them and they throw them into the furnace. It's so hot. Do you know what happens to the soldiers? They die. <laughs> it's so hot. The friends go into the flames and that's the end of them, right? You would think so because the fire was so hot. King Nebuchadnezzar was standing at his distance, far, far away, nice, having his fans over here probably, staying cool, and he's watching this. And he sees and he looks into the furnace from a distance and he says to one of his advisors, he says, I thought that there were only three, three people that we threw into the furnace, but I see four. And one of them looks like the sons of the gods. And he was right to a certain extent. 
Because the God who said, I'm going to stand with you in the fire and I'm going to deliver you, was the God who sent his own presence, whether an angel or perhaps, some people speculate, even the Son of God that we learn about later on in Scripture, to stand in the fire with these three. And there they are, chatting, talking. Like there's not even a flame in the building. Do you see what an incredible God those three friends have that stands with them, that enters into their suffering, and not just enters into their suffering, but actually delivers them out of their suffering. Number two, what is up with idolatry? Do you see this awesome God, this incredible God that, that awaits us? Why do we need to abandon all other gods? When I bring up the word idolatry, what do you think of? Do you think of like a nine foot by 90 foot high statue that, that needs to be bowed down to? Do you think perhaps of uh, idols that are put in homes of people that are worshipped? That's true. That's, those are idols, and that's idol worship. Um, I, I went on a study tour through Greece and through Turkey in seminary, and we went to all these, these ancient sites, and, and each ancient site in each city had its own god. There was a god that would cover any kind of thing in your life. Uh, you go to uh, Ephesus, and there is the temple of Artemis. And Artemis, uh, this temple was one of the seven wonders of the world at one time. And Artemis was the god of fertility and of wealth. And if you worshipped her, then you would be, have a big family, which was a quality back then, and, and you would have a lot of money if she bestowed her grace on you, if she chose to do that. And then you'd move on and, and we'll go to Athens. And what's in Athens? Of course, there's the Parthenon that you see that's being rebuilt and has been rebuilt. And the Parthenon of Athena looks over a big marketplace. And in that marketplace, Paul, in the book of Acts, talks about walking around that marketplace. And he saw gods for everything in life. I mean, there's the god uh, of craftsmanship. There's the god of um, love and of beauty. What's her name? Aphrodite. There's the god of war, Ares. There's all these different gods that have to do with these different aspects in life. And, and if you worship them and if you honored them and if you respected them, they would bestow blessings on you, right? We are not so different than the ancient culture. Idolatry is loving anything or making anything more important than God. And we might not bow down to Aphrodite, but how many women, young and old, do you know that have perhaps starved themselves or made their bodies something, a way that they want to make it because they want to be beautiful? And we might not worship or burn incense or make sacrifices to Artemis, but how many men have pursued success at career and making money almost to the point that they're doing a child sacrifice by abandoning their communities and their families. And then we honor them and we say, these are great people because they're doing this great thing. They're making lots of money. Idolatry is putting up anything. And Have you ever seen the movie The Lord of the Rings before? 
And you know that whole series, maybe you've read the books or you've seen the movies. You know the ring in that movie, what it does to people? That ring, when you put that ring on, it makes you go to extremes to carry out your heart's passion. And it doesn't matter whether it's an evil thing that you want to do or an evil thing you have in your head or if it's a good thing. Like even if it's freeing slaves or taking land and giving it back to the rightful owners or, or taking out justice on people that have done wrong, like very valiant things, this ring, when you put it on, it makes you pursue that so much that you abandon what? All your other morals. And you abandon even your, your allegiances and your friendships that you have with other people. It makes you go crazy. It's, it's what is idolatry. Do you know who this is? Any guesses? This is Rhonda Rousey. She is a UFC Ultimate Fighter Champion um, fighter in mixed martial arts, perhaps the most famous female athlete in the world today. Some people say maybe ever. She went undefeated in her professional career from 2010 to 2015. And she has a Muhammad Ali type of personality too where she knows how to talk to talk to and uh, she's very aggressive it's a very violent sport it is and she's extremely successful and talented in it november 2015 do you know what happened within 59 seconds she got ko'd by holly Holm, and her life came unraveled literally she wanted to kill herself after that fight after one loss, after one minute. Can you believe that? She went on the Ellen DeGeneres show shortly after that, and um, she said this. Honestly, my thought in the medical room, I was sitting in the corner and was like, what am I anymore if I'm not this? Rousey said, literally sitting there thinking about killing myself. In that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? No one, and I edited this for church, cares about me anymore without this. Look at those. What, do you recognize her idol, her God? Do you, do you recognize what absorbs her thoughts and is her identity all the time? It's real. The amazing thing about this is she converts in this moment. She converts, but she doesn't convert to the God of the Bible, and she doesn't convert to God. She actually converts from the idol of success to something else. Let's read it. I looked up and saw my man, Travis, was standing there, Rousey said. I'm looking up at him and was just like, I need to have his babies. I need to stay alive. She converts from success to what? Romanticism. And now her whole life is going to be built on what? A successful family, having babies, making this man happy. But let me ask you, what will happen if the relationship breaks up or if the children don't turn out the way that she wants them to turn out? Do you think that that's, that family is going to take her feelings away about taking her life, her meaning? It's not just celebrities and UFC fighters, but it's the young person who's gone through high school their entire life trying to please um, mom and dad or trying to please their teachers and get top grades in their class, 4.0 student, 
in high school, valedictorian, um, goes to an Ivy League school, one of the best schools in the world, and then they get to that school and they've built this identity on it. And what happens when they get to that big school, that, 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 that high-ranking school? They're average, right? They're middle of the class. And then what do they feel about their life? Their identity is shaken up. They're shattered. It, it, it happens to the man who's growing older, and so is his bride. And he wants to become invigorated again, and he wants to feel life again. He wants to feel lively again. So what does he do? He divorces her, and he takes on a, a woman that's half his age, to feel young again. But then, a year into that, he realizes that his relationship problems are just the same. And it happens to that woman who, that young woman who wants to marry and have a family and, and she, she bypasses many good candidates in marriage but because she wants to give her kids and her future family a good vacations and good schooling and, and the perfect uh, athletic programs and this all costs money and she bypasses all of these middle income, very good candidates and loving Christian candidates for marriage to, to marry somebody extremely wealthy. And then she marries that wealthy person and realizes that there's absolutely no love there, no relationship there, and her family is more sad and her children more depressed than ever because they don't have a dad. Do you see how idols rule our life? And our culture builds them. We have our own totems. We have our own um, rituals, our own priesthoods. You can call it the, the gym. You can call it the office tower. You can call it the hiking trail. You can call it... Um, you can call it the stadium. You can call it any number of things that, 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 that takes up our heart's desire. But they all leave you empty. That's why it's time to get rid of them. All of them. Number three, the God of the Bible is the only God that you need. Nebuchadnezzar looks at that furnace and he sees that there's three, four people in that furnace that aren't burning up. And so he says, call them out of there. This isn't working. Obviously, I've been bested. He, he recognizes it right away. And, and so they bring the friends out, and it's the three friends again who are brought out of the fiery furnace, and they stand before the king, and the king is baffled. I mean, he's never been bested before, and he asks these friends about their faith and about who this, and the friends tell them all about this Hebrew God that they worship, the God that, that promised to deliver them through fire, the God who's like a father to them, that they, wouldn't go, that they would even go through flames for him because they know that he loves them. And Nebuchadnezzar says this at the very end. He says, no other God can save in this way. He's a foreigner. He's one that's never believed or even knew this God. And now he experiences this God and his rescuing power. And he says, there is no other God that can do any of this. And that's true for you too. The God of the Bible says this, there's no other God that actually makes Ten Commandments right? Makes all these laws, and then he puts himself underneath the laws, and he says, and I'm going to keep them too. I'm going to come in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and I'm going to keep the first commandment, have no other gods. I'm going to keep every commandment after that that says, love your neighbor and love God with your whole heart, and he was the only one that could do it all the way. And he was the one that stood underneath the fire and stood in the fire through a crucifixion, although he was innocent, Although he had did no wrong and he kept the commandments perfectly, that he went all the way to a cross and was crucified like a criminal. Why was he crucified like a criminal? Because the Bible says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. There's no other God that can save in this way, that gives us 
his righteousness as a gift and says, I love you, you're right, you're forgiven in my sight, and there's nothing anybody else can do about it. You don't earn it, you don't deserve it, but you just have it. My righteousness, my, my relationship with you. And it's that God that comes to that, 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 that college student that is depressed because she's not at the top of her class, and, she, and he says to her this, I'm your principal, and I don't care what grades you get, and I don't care how well you do, whether you're in the top of your class or bottom of your class, I look at you as my dear daughter, and you don't need to live underneath that identity. You can get rid of that God because I'm your God. I forgive you, and I love you. And it's that God that comes, that has given his life for the forgiveness of sins for the whole world, that comes to that man that has messed up relationship after relationship after relationship because he's running after excitement. And he comes to him and he says, I'm your God. I make you as white as snow in forgiveness. Repent. Believe in me. He comes to that woman that is bowing down at the... At the uh, altar of Aphrodite. And although she's been emptied as far as her perfume bottle can go and depressed that she can't get more attention, he comes to her and he says, I'm going to be your beauty pageant judge. And I tell you that you are beautiful from the inside out all the way. I made you the way that I made you. And I love you all the way through. And I gave my life for you. He's the one that comes to you and me and smashes our idols. Because although idols promise things, this one might promise craftsmanship, that one might promise success, and this one actually makes the promises and then he carries them out. And he did that when he rose from the dead. His son rose from the dead to give you eternal life so that even if all the other things in this world would be taken away, all the little idols would be coming and going in our life, he says, no, I, I, I'm going to give you something even bigger and better than that and that's relationship with God and eternal life in heaven. Martin Luther, the reformer from the 16th century, he recognized this. And it was part of what he wrote into his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's the fact that the God that we have is the God that actually gives all the more when we, everything else has been taken away. The God that says, even if, uh, when we say, even if we get burned in this fire, he's the God that's going to deliver me no matter what. Martin Luther lived through many of these trials in his life when there were people pointing at him and saying, Who will deliver you? Who's able to deliver you? And he writes this. Let's say it together. The word they still shall let remain, nor any thanks have for it. He's by our side upon the plain with his good gifts and spirit. And take they our life, good fame, child, and wife. Though all may be gone, our victory is won. The kingdom's ours forever. Do you see what incredible God that you have? Do you see why no other gods, no other idols compare? Now believe. Believe that the God of the Bible is the only God that you need because he's the only God that gives grace, that gives forgiveness, that gives you a relationship with him and eternal life forever. You shall have no other gods. Amen.